Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. today in the world i am in my own home in stoke newington sitting on the oh. sofa nothing very exciting about that <laughs> that'd be london then that would be london yes london london bar of hackney formerly middlesex in fact so oh newington, really of course yes in Middlesex until the boundary changes of the early 1960s. I always like to make this point when talking about Stoke Newington. Then we have to counter with, well, of course, before it was the home of all the, um, you know, the detenters, Daniel Defoe and so on, who's been memorialised by a road that True. is referred to by all locals as Defoe Road. So, oh, yeah. you know. And also Mary Wollstonecroft. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, no, it's a good spot to be. Meanwhile, somewhere else in London... I assume London, Ben Moore is on the internet. Yes. This is a very busy time of year for you, isn't it? Because you're, you've just come back from the Latitude Festival in Suffolk. Is that is Latitude in Suffolk? Yeah, Henham Park, just near Southwold. And uh, me and uh, the amazing Joanna Neary, we played two authors at a fake author event that goes horribly wrong. Uh, it's called Book Talk, Book Talk, Book. And we're performing it again at the Edinburgh Fringe in August, uh, along with uh, she's doing another show of her own uh, called Wasp in a Cardigan, and I'm doing two other shows of my own. Uh, one's called Pronoun Trouble, and that's a lecture about Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck cartoons, but it deals with laundrettes and many other subjects. I, well, I don't want to give anything away, It's it, but it's amazing. Thank you. And another show called Who Hears Lost, which is a, an hour-long story about uh, two oddballs going on a road trip of the soul. And that's these are all at the Pleasance Courtyard during the Edinburgh F- Festival Fringe. Come along. Which is running throughout August. So if you're, uh, if you're up at the Book Festival in Edinburgh and you fancy a walk on the wild side uh, by going to the actual Fringe, you could do that and go and see one of Ben's... Shows. I know a lot of people say uh, um, things like their wedding day or attending the birth of their child is the greatest moment of their life. But the greatest moment of my life was seeing Book Talk, Book Talk, Book at the Paul Elliott Festival a few years ago. Well, that... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, it's right. My wife would agree. She, she says, you know, the birth of our son was an amazing moment. But from everything I've said about Book Talk, Book Talk, Book, that was clearly that was clearly superior. Why was it superior? Oh, my God. It's the most fantastically clever and funny regurgitation of everything bad about every book event (laughs) I have ever been to. Thanks to Ben and 
the brilliant Joe Neary, then does it really go over well at book oh. festivals when you do it at book festivals? Essentially, it is it's exactly designed for that because I think a literary festival audience comes with a certain energy and they sit down and they, they have their questions planned and they have their copies of their the books to be signed and all of this. And we just mess with that continuously. And the show changes what it is every five minutes. I was going to say, do you ch- do you change it? Do you, do you kind of adapt it to to um, no? Only to in the sense that uh, we'll forget the wrong line a different time. You know, it'll be different every time. But um, no, essentially, it's um, it's a it's a it's a, a trip, and the audience kind of goes with it, and then they go, oh, we don't get, oh yeah, just enjoy it, <laughs> and by the end, it becomes this totally other sort of piece of performance art that. Uh, baffles and delights and two separate ways i'm presuming you're a, you you must be a fan of of francis plug those those books <sighs> the biggest fan of francis plug how to be yeah. a public author well andy yeah. of course well, I uh, alongside mr at miller the and... stones in piccadilly and yeah. it's extraordinary i mean my piece is very different mm. to what paul ewan does with francis plug but essentially it yeah. is that same experience of author events, uh, literary festivals, and just saying, well, how do we disrupt this but play with it? Marie, do you enjoy doing events? Yeah, I actually really do. I, I really like um, I like any opportunity to, to, to meet people and talk and talk about books. I mean, that's not to say that they have all gone beautifully well. I remember my worst experience, it might have been Latitude even, where I was, I was on the bill just before Irvin Welsh and all the Irvin Welsh fans had taken all the front seats because they wanted to get in there first. And the first question to author from the audience was, what time is Irvin Welsh on? That was, I think, (laughs) (laughs) that that wasn't a great moment. But um, I'm, I'm I'm an extrovert author, not an introvert author. So Mm. I get sick of sitting in my room. Yeah. I'm sort of desperate to meet people. So I get out there and I, I do enjoy it. Uh, and even, you know, even the occasional Irvin Welsh fan can't keep me down. Well, we enjoy it, don't we, Andy? Oh, I'm like you, Marie. I, I love an audience. <laughs> uh, Johnny. Let's kick on with the show. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in the reception of an office building in Kansas City. That's Kansas City, Kansas, not Kansas City, Missouri sometime in 2010. It's a regular office with receptionists busy on the phone and a large man in a smart suit has just placed a bowl of blue peanut M&Ms on the front desk. All seems normal here, even if the disabled toilet gets more use than usual. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And today we're joined by two returning guests, Marie Phillips and Ben Moore. Hello, Marie and Ben. Hello. 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 Thank you for coming onto the internet to do this today. Marie Phillips is an author whose works include the international bestseller God's Behaving Badly and The Table of Less Valued Nights, which was longlisted for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction in 2015. And Oh, I Do Like to Be, a seaside reworking of Shakespeare's play The Comedy of Errors, uh, which was published by Unbound in 2019. And as we said last time, I reviewed it in a magazine and claimed it was funnier than the original. But I stand by those words. 
it is funnier than the comedy of errors. Well done, Marie. <laughs> Marie spent the last year creating two works of storytelling theatre. Could you help me say that? Oh, Lala. Lala. Thank you. Uh, two works of storytelling theatre, Lala, based on Ovid, which toured Belgium in March and April, and an all-female site-specific version of the Odyssey, performed earlier in July in an old shipyard in Amsterdam. Goodness, that's quite a thing. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Um, that we should have done in 2020, and then for some strange reason, it got postponed for two years. But I'd been to this shipyard. Um, ah. It's sort of attached to it to a cafe. Um, and I walked in and I just thought, the Odyssey. It's got a path that winds through the boats. So I put the storytellers along the path and then the audience went in little groups and met storytellers as they went along. And each storyteller told oh, uh, one of the women's stories from the Odyssey as, as you go through and then you, you get the whole story from the from the female perspective. It was a fantastic, fantastic uh, show. Marie, you also wrote a story for This American Life at the end of last year too, which means, as you so generously put it, that you've been on both the best podcasts around. Thank you. What a nice... Well, you are nice. Thank you. I have no more podcast goals. I'm done. <laughs> this is it. Yeah, this is it. You've been on this before. You were on episode 139. It's where we talked about yeah. The Evenings by Gerard Reeve. I'm extremely relieved you're not going to make me speak Dutch on this particular edition this that was that was the high point of last time I had to I had to read it out in Dutch Marie the show is young yeah I might ask for a a lightning rods (laughs) translation on the spot I'm not sure I have all of the correct vocabulary to translate lightning rods um, (laughs) okay fair enough Ben Moore let's talk about Ben Moore some more he's excellent He is an award-winning writer and performer, producing and dramaturging numerous theatre pieces in the UK and Italy over a 30-year career. His solo stage work combines poetic language and heartfelt truths with surreal comedy and idiosyncratic inventions. And that work has been likened to Lewis Carroll, Douglas Adams and Robert Lepage. His screen credits include (laughs) The Queen's Gambit. That's right. Ben Moore, star of The Queen's Gambit. Well, uh, <laughs> very small. <laughs> the yeah. IT crowd. Yeah. Knowing Me, Knowing You yeah. and A Monster Calls. He's written for The Guardian and The Idler and is the creator of the BBC radio series Elastic Planet and Undone and the author of the book More Trees to Climb. His current shows are Who Hears Lost, Pronoun Trouble, Book Talk, Book Talk, Book Talk. They're on in Edinburgh. The latter has been compared by the uh, comedian Stuart Lee to the work of the author Georges Louis Borges. And uh, I would uh, concur with that analysis. Ben Moore has been on Backlister before. He joined us at the Port Elliot Festival in 2018. Yep. Uh, episode 72 with Cathy Rensenbrink to talk about Pierre Bayard's How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read. That was tremendously good fun, that show. Marie Phillips, have you read How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read by Pierre Bayard? Well, (laughs) I mean, it's an interesting title that many people have read. And uh, I feel like, uh, you know. (laughs) Very good. Very good. The book we're here to discuss is Lightning Rogs, the second published novel. Uh, by the American novelist Helen DeWitt, and I use the word published uh, in, in, in the 
heavy inverted commas. It was first released in 2011 by New Directions in the US and and other stories in the UK. Her first published novel, The Last Samurai, was an international bestseller translated into over 20 languages. But as David Flussfader writes in his introduction to the UK edition of Lightning Rods, nothing in the first book except the pleasures and quality of its prose can prepare you for lightning rods. Often classified as a satire in American capitalism, we will discuss whether that's the right or most helpful classification. It's a disarmingly upbeat and funny book about Joe, a struggling salesman who develops a new office product that he believes serves a real need in modern corporate life. Quite what that product is and how it works requires a delicacy in description and quite possibly a, a warning for listeners. Let's just say that what Joe invents is not a more efficient stapler or a new way of dispensing skinny lattes. What we can all agree on is that Helen DeWitt is one of the most interesting and challenging of contemporary novelists, and in Lightning Rods, she's produced a strange and compelling novel, quite possibly a classic. I am just going to reinforce uh, and make more straightforward the message delivered by my colleague John Mayer. It is difficult to talk about Lightning Rods if not impossible to discuss it, without crossing into areas that some listeners may not be comfortable with. So consider this your health warning. If you are easily uh, offended or just standardly offended, uh, you're, you, you may struggle with elements of the book we're going to talk about. Ludic fiction is not for you? Stop here. Yeah, but but seriously though, we should stop joking about it. You might you might it, it's stronger material than we usually deal with on backlisted. So I feel we have a responsibility to the listeners to give them the option of not listening. And having said that, just keep listening. It's fine. It'll be fine. It's fine. Before we take the elevator and pay a visit to human resources, Andy. Yes. What have you been reading this week? Um, thanks, John. Uh, I've been reading a novel by uh, the Scottish writer Ruth M. Arthur uh, that was published by Galantz in 1973 as The Autumn People and then republished in 1976 by Target Books, Doctor Who publisher Target Books, uh, as The Autumn Ghosts. They changed the title for the paperback edition three years later. And uh, it's a children's book. And uh, the reason why I've been reading that this week is I've been very poorly with the COVID. It finally caught up with me. And as you will all remember, if you're listening to this in the month of July or August 2022, uh, we've just been through a really vicious heat wave. And at the absolute apex of the heat wave with COVID, I was chatting on Twitter to our former, former guest, Alice Stevenson, and to listener, uh, the unreal Ramona. And... Alice Stevenson mentioned that her Twitter avatar is a bit of the cover of a book called The Autumn People by Ruth M. Arthur. And it was on that basis and the fact that it mentioned autumn on the hottest day of the year that I decided to read this book. I let I I, I rolled the dice Luke Reinhardt style and this is what it landed on. So what I got in The Autumn People was a surprisingly weird novel. <laughs> Incredibly enjoyable. It's sort of got a 70s folk horror element to it. We're quite used to hearing that description now, aren't we? But it's set on a Scottish isle called Carasay, and it's split between two time periods, 100 years apart, 
a woman and her great-granddaughter meet across time. And it's sort of like a cross between... John, you'll appreciate this. It's like a cross between Jane Eyre, I Know Where I'm Going, and The Omen. I'm in. It, it's I'm sort in. Of, I'm, it's I'm a bit completely... Of, is there a bit of sapphire and steel yeah. in there? It sounds like one of Ben's... <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Mute me, Marie. He's I definitely haven't. read this one. He's definitely read this. All his good stuff comes from the Autumn Ghosts. Oh, Autumn People. They shouldn't have changed that. They should call it the Autumn People. Anyway, yeah. it feels like a sort of starter kit Daphne du Maurier or Mary Stewart. <laughs> and the plot takes these really impossibly weird turns, almost as though uh, Ruth M. Arthur was making it up as she went along. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to read you an example of that now. So Ruth likes to switch it around. So our, our heroine, whose name is Millie, um, she's in love with a young gentleman called Jocelyn. I began to think of Jocelyn and to long to see him just for a few minutes, to hear his voice, to touch his hand. Dare I walk through the dusky garden across the road to Tallow's, or was it too late for such a call? Perhaps Jocelyn too felt restless and had a longing for me. Perhaps we would meet in the garden or on the drive if I slipped out quickly now. I stepped out of the open window into the garden. The night was sultry and scented and very still, but I heard the growl of approaching thunder. From the wash house, a light shone out, and I thought that Roger, a, a sinister figure, was safely occupied with his photography. I crossed the lawn and followed the path to the empty summer house, then on through the little wood and out to the road. But there was no sign of Jocelyn, and the storm was coming nearer. I'd better get safely indoors before it broke. I turned and doubled back towards the house, then paused a moment in the wood as a fantastic flash of lightning lit the trees, and at that moment a shrill, terrified scream rose piercingly into the air. It came from quite close by, the tortured cry of an animal in pain. I searched around me, bending, poking in the undergrowth, afraid of finding something trapped, mangled, but compelled to try to help, I found instead a large hole in the bank behind me, hidden by a fallen log and trailing creepers. And as I knelt to look more closely, the scream, feebler this time, came from inside the hole. There was Roger, holding an animal above a naked flame. There was a scuffling noise across the floor as the animal he'd been torturing escaped to safety. We stood facing one another. I was panting with rage, my eyes blazing with anger. You devil, I exploded. You cruel, cold devil. He chuckled appreciatively. I like to see you roused, my dear. There's a devil in you, too. Well. Yeah, sounds like I'll be getting that for my nieces. Can you imagine, readers, as I, reclining on my litter, poorly with COVID, felt my heartbeat race and breath hard to come by? Uh, what a brilliant book. It was really, really, really enjoyable. Uh, it's called The Autumn Ghosts or The Autumn People. And is it still in print, Andy? Oh, no. No, no long there's since. A, there's about yeah, to be yeah. a stampede onto the internet to get hold yeah, of Yeah, I was going to say, eight books, look out. Oh, you can get it on eBay and that. John, what have you been reading this week? I've been reading The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells by Sarah Churchwell, which... Uh, uh, is also got its fair share of horror in it. It's, I think, a completely brilliant piece of what I think Sarah does almost better than anyone, forensic taking apart of a work of literature to understand the culture that produces it. Uh, like pretty much everybody, she grew up 
uh, in love with the film. She then read the book and discovered that the book was quite dramatically different in lots of ways to the film. The pr prolific use of the N-word in the book was not carried over into the film, and she goes into exactly how and why that happened. A lot, a lot of it was to do with the black protests of the, the making of film at all. But really what the book's about is the moral complacency at the heart of the story. All the main characters, all the main white male characters, apart from Rhett Butler, are members of the Ku Klux Klan. In, in, uh, in, in... Is this something that was remarked upon when the book was first published? Oh, yeah. So this isn't book, hiding book, in plain sight. It's... Let's be honest. The book became the best-selling book. It's still um, the best-selling book in American history. Uh, the film was the biggest grossing film, and probably, if you again adjust for, will probably still be the biggest grossing film, and certainly one of the films that continually is is on on repeat. So, in terms of the the book, is really an attempt to understand the mythos. It starts with the the it starts with the assault on the Capitol building, January the sixth, two thousand and twenty one, and asks the question: What the hell has happened to America? And as it turns out, understanding. Uh, Understanding the, the the novel and the film and the those, that combination of uh, Gone with the Wind is an amazingly useful way. I'm going to not blether. I'm going to read you a little bit because nobody nobody actually explains this better than than Sarah. It's for me. It's it's a great work of literary criticism, but it's also a great work of cultural criticism. And it's also an important book. As we discover this year, the, this year in Texas, they have removed from uh, from the the, the curriculum. Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream speech for encouraging discussion of racism, which is something I, I certainly didn't know this. The book is full of this. It's the first film ever shown in the White House was Birth of a Nation, based mm -hmm. on the, uh, the the novel The Klansman by Thomas mm -hmm. J. Dixon. So the way that books and films feed uh, American mythology is what really this, this book is about. So I'll just read you. Here's some great prose from Sarah. Gone with the Wind marks a cultural breakdown, the point where mythology triumphed over history. It helped derail our understanding of America's past, and urging the erasure of Gone with the Wind would simply reinforce that failure, even as the American right is currently engaged in a mighty effort to create another fraudulent history around its new lost cause. This book follows American history back down into the myth to excavate what's been buried, not just the facts the historians have long been carefully bringing to light, and upon whose vast scholarship this book depends, but also suppressed psychopolitical realities. The lies, the distortions, the justifications, the half-truths, the rampant projections, the cognitive dissonances, the negations, the flat denials, all the stinging truths Americans don't want to admit about ourselves that gone with the wind, caught like flypaper. The many slips of the tongue in Gone with the Wind would matter far less if they were just one writer's unconscious associations, but they were taken up by audiences at a mass scale. It is because the story remains so phenomenally popular that these slips become significant, because they mark losses of control not only in Mitchell's individual narrative, but in the American master narrative it captures so fully. Gone with the Wind shows what white America has believed and wanted to believe about its own history. It curates and cultivates America's great white myths about itself. James Baldwin shouted the truth at us half a century ago. White man, hear me. History, as nearly no one seems to know, is not merely something to be read, and it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is present 
in all that we do. That was in an essay called The White Man's Guilt, part of Baldwin's long frustrating project to try to persuade America to face the dark realities of its history and the legacies of enslavement and segregation. Gone with the Wind captures that great force of history we carry within us. History is present in all it does, controlling it, but unconsciously. There is a reckoning in the distance, rolling ever nearer, the reckoning of which Baldwin and others have been warning America for a century and more. It is past time for us to confront what Baldwin said black Americans have always seen, spinning above the thoughtless American head, the shape of the wrath to come. This book is part of my effort to look up and see what was always there, spinning above my thoughtless American head. It's a brilliant book. Um, and it's kind of a, I suppose, is a sequel to uh, to uh, America First, a previous book. And then so that's just published? Just published by Head of Zeus. It was commissioned as a short monograph on Gone with the Wind and turned into a... <laughs> turned into. A, oh, she joined us on Lotlisted when she just yeah. finished it or was just finishing it, didn't she? That's right. Yeah, it's, right. it's yeah. Um, amazing. Must well, it sounds, sounds brilliant. Actually, and also we're going to be talking about Lightning Rods, which in its own peculiar yeah. way interrogates founding myths about America too, doesn't it? Surely does. How you construct a moral code around uh, an immoral act. <laughs> Discuss. We can uh, we can we can move on to that seamlessly in a minute. We'll be back in just a sec. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. So before we uh, start talking about lightning rods and Helen DeWitt, I thought it might be nice to um, hear from the author herself. As the survey proved several years ago, becoming an author is the thing that more people want to do than pursue any other career uh, in the UK. And uh, so I thought it might be nice to hear from someone who made it. Uh, that's the author of the subject of this book, Helen DeWitt uh, herself. And here she is talking to the Paris Review a few years ago. I had spent seven years trying to write various first novels. And by this time I had, I don't know, maybe a hundred unfinished novels. I was in my late thirties. I was working as a legal secretary. And finally, I just thought, you know, I, I just have to quit and write till my money runs out and not have a job or anything. I'm going to sit down on day one and do nothing but work on this book. And I'm going to finish it in a month. And then I will have a finished book. And 
See, it doesn't matter what happens then. You know, I mean, maybe it will get published or maybe it won't, but it will be finished and then I can go on and get on with my life. Yeah. That was, that was, that was, that was the plan. <laughs> we'll be hearing from Helen again uh, later during this podcast. Her career has become part of her persona and what we know about her as a writer. So we'll come on to that later. But Marie, could I ask you first, when did you first become aware of Helen DeWitt? Was it with The Last Samurai, her big novel from 2000? I think I was quite late to the party. Um, The New Yorker published a profile of her in 2018, which actually marked the release of her book of short stories. But the profile began with extensive quotes of two of the funniest parts of The Last Samurai, one of which is her description of what she calls the medley, which is the moment in which the main adult woman character in the book has an unbearably awful sexual encounter with a man she nicknames Liberace, mm. who, who performs on her what she describes in hilarious detail as a sexual medley, swiftly followed by an extensive quote in which she discusses the joys of being American in Britain and seeing all of the different fried chicken shops named after states that do not traditionally <laughs> fry chicken. I was living in Amsterdam at the time, There are good English language bookshops in Amsterdam, but you can't always find everything you need. Um, So to my immense surprise, when I was looking for it again, I discovered that I had downloaded on my Kindle. And looking back, I suspect that I downloaded it that very moment Mm. uh, before even finishing the article. And then after reading The Last Samurai, I looked up to see how many other books she'd published, which is very few. And I made a decision at that point that I could not immediately read Lightning Rods, even though I wanted to, because because then it would all, it would be gone. Like I wouldn't have enough Helen DeWitt to keep me going. Yeah. No, um, so I had to, I sort of had to hold back for, for a, a couple more years until I couldn't take it anymore. And I just needed more Helen DeWitt in my life. And then I went out and got lightning rods. So as John was saying, she's published two full length novels. Uh, the Last Samurai, which was published in 2000 and Lightning Rods, which was published in 2011 though both those books were written in the 1990s. She's written, as far as we know, in various stages of completion, many more books, as she was just saying. But so far, only two of them have made it off her hard drive and into print. Ben, when did you read Lightning Rods? When it came out or or more recently? Very, very close to when it came out in 2012, because it, it was a, a runner in the tournament of books. I don't know. It's another of the great, like backlisted. It's a great book thing. Uh, essentially, uh, a website called The Morning News uh, hosts during March Madness. You know, when the basketball tournament or the college basketball <laughs> brackets uh-huh. happen in America. Um, essentially, it's a um, a tournament of books where there was a bracket and the 16 novels at the beginning of the tournament. And they Two books are sent to one reviewer, one critic. They write an essay and they advance one book throughout the tournament and so on and so forth until we get to a, the, the winners of the semi-final. And then they have to have a zombie round where the readers of the website get to uh, resurrect their favourite books that have already been knocked out until we get yeah. to the final. And Helen DeWitt had an amazing run in the tournament of books in 2012. And she actually got to the semi-final where she was up against Patrick DeWitt's The Sisters Brothers. And it was oh. kind of, yeah, I know. 
two DeWitts and and one two DeWitts enter, one DeWitt leaves. But um, <laughs> over the years, this the tournament of books has just been an absolute joy. Every March, you get to learn about these books and you get to know them through these different reviewers as they go through different rounds. So, what did you know about it then before you started reading it? Nothing. Well, only the 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 little pieces of criticism, little bits of. And um, they're sort of reviews, but they're sort of essays about the reading experience, because how can you judge art against art? Essentially, a lot of these um, people that are judging in the tournament of books are saying, well, this this spoke to me in this way. And I found this connection with the two books this way. And it just seems so interesting because there were so many things that the reviewers, the, the, the writers couldn't actually say about lightning rods that it just sounded, <laughs> well, I need to read this because I need yeah. to understand what they're not saying. Can I ask Marie the same question? Did you know much about this novel before you started reading it? I did not. And can I ask you both then, given the health warning we issued earlier, and John as well, John, had you read this before? How did you feel when you've read the first few pages thinking, what? Oh, this is going to be about, oh, this is going to be about this. I listened to it, actually. I listened to the audio book. I haven't laughed as much. <laughs> I, I mean, it's quite a good audio book. It's quite well read. I haven't laughed as much for a long time just because I felt, I felt like I was in the tractor beam of something that I could not, <laughs> yeah. I could not escape from. It was yeah. so, it was, the, the setup is so, it's so perfect. It's so it's 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 so chummy. It's kind of like an, an American guy buying you a beer and giving you all his home homespun philosophy, and it getting madder and madder and madder. And I, I mean, I, I you know it was only a couple of hours, but it was far enough into it to to see where the book was going. And then I have to say, I I I I, I read it very quickly after that. As a writer, I, I scribbled down the phrase "furious logic." Yes. I say furious logic because of both the tightness of the concepts, which she refuses to break, but also there's something infuriated about how she proceeds with telling you what she wants to tell you. Something is really under, has got under her skin to present the, the fact of the book to you in such a kind of defying you to argue back. That's how I felt. I felt I was being presented with something where I, I, I was, I, as a reader, I was, I was being told, come on, you can't, you can't respond to this. You cannot argue with me on this. I have nailed this down. Um, does anybody want to attempt for Nikki's benefit and for our listeners' benefit to say what it's about? No. Oh, please. Sorry. I will. <laughs> Thank you, Marie. I will pick up that gauntlet. Oh, Marie. So the premise is that uh, the central character who is um, at the beginning of the book a failed salesman, having failed to sell the Encyclopedia Britannica and having failed to sell Electrolux vacuum cleaners, comes up with a new idea based on one of his own sexual fantasies that he is going to sell a solution to work-based sexual harassment, which involves providing companies with what he describes as lightning rods, which is a facility in which, in the privacy of the disabled toilet, a panel will slide aside 
and a woman's hindquarters, bare hindquarters, will be reversed into the room so that a man who might otherwise commit sexual harassment <laughs> will relieve his urges into this convenient live receptacle. This is not what I was expecting. Can I just say? Right. <laughs> That's a beautiful... Please well show some appreciation. It's all completely anonymized. Yeah. And for which the woman gets paid extremely uh, an extremely attractive financial Very bonus. Very reasonable. So once she's set this up, she basically examines it from every possible angle in, in the form of the, the, the protagonist, this, this salesman, has to go through every possible... Uh, permutation and detail um, and yes it's very important that it's anonymous for both people concerned so he has to set up an entire temping agency only some of whom are, are lightning rods in order to to provide a large enough pool of women in the company so that nobody knows which of the women are the ones who are occasionally slipping off um to, to perform the service. They all also have to have excellent typing skills, um, be fantastic PAs, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah. and there's this whole, there's all kinds of things about um, how do you then protect the anonymity of the men? And that's done through a sort of randomized computer program um, that sort of just pings on their screen saying, it's your turn, <laughs> off you go. And they'll just, you know, slip away to the bathroom and, uh, you know, do the necessary. But it's like um, the top of a, a bobsleigh track, isn't it? Because when you, when you start the yes. story, it can only keep going <laughs> into different different um, concepts, different challenges. I mean, I think, I think the main character is the idea rather than the, the, the guy. Do you know what I mean? Because it's the idea that faces all these challenges. Mm. So... Mm. Um, Yes. So it's a novel of an idea. Yes, that's. But it's not, you know, it doesn't seek. Well, it goes through different characters and different um, plot. There's not an awful lot mm. of plot in it, but it just keeps testing you I, as a reader yeah, as an idea. Yeah, I would say I've thought I I I, I issue these um, proclamations sparingly because I want to keep away from hype. So I only say them when I've thought about them and I mean them. I think this is the best novel the best satirical novel that i've read this century i can't think of a better satirical novel than lightning rods it's a satire of so many things that i yeah. don't even know what it's a satire of yeah i could list for you uh and maybe we'll come on to that various elements that seem to me satirical of specific things but the thing you've both just talked about, and John was talking about, about it being like a tightrope walk or a high yeah. wire act. It, it's how she picks her way through via a series of perfectly logical stages. What you would need to do in the American workplace and society to render this idea, if not acceptable, then widely adopted. While also she does a brilliant thing, Marie, I think, where every so often she breaks her own frame, where a character will go, what? Are you, ki <laughs> are you kidding? Just to let every so often let you, the reader, know yeah. that you, you, there, there is a map. You're not totally out there on your own. 
I wonder, could I read a little bit from the beginning just to set this up and thank Marie and Ben already for their bravery in um, describing what they've just described. So I'm going to read a bit where Joe the salesman is talking near the beginning, the section that Marie was referring to. And listeners, just keep, um, keep count of the number of cliches or motivational cliches that Joe speaks to us while he's describing his situation. What most people assume is that you can answer a question just by looking at a map. And what they overlook is the fact that when you start a new job, it's important to give it everything you've got. It's important to give that new job 101%, 25 hours a day, 366 days a year. You simply can't afford to have any distractions. If the reason you gave up your old job was that it was not sufficiently remunerative to enable you to meet your commitments, you may well find yourself with some debts which it would be distracting to deal with at this time. It's absolutely vital to start the new job in an area where any difficulties you may have experienced in the past are unlikely to lead to unwelcome distractions. He needed to be based in a locality presenting no foreseeable distractions, and he selected the nearest Electrolux office which would enable him to meet that need, and he walked straight in. When you're in sales, you've always got one thing to sell, and that's yourself. He walked in and started talking about what he could do for Electrolux sales, and they said, you're that good? All I ask is the chance to show what I can do, he said. And they said, all right, hotshot, let's see what you can do. And they gave him a district. He familiarized himself with the product and moved to Eureka and rented a trailer. The next day, he got cracking. By the end of the week, he realized that this was not going to be as easy as it looked because every single house he went to had the same story to tell. They already had an Electrolux. They bought it just after Hurricane Edna and it was one of the best things they'd ever done. The customer would then insist on dragging out the faithful Electrolux and singing its praises. Yes, sir, the customer would say, reckon I'll break down before this thing does. Anyway. We go on with Joe describing this trap he's constructed for himself. Then he says, he managed to make one sale to someone who had just moved into the area. The result was that he spent a lot of time in the trailer trying to get up the energy to go out. He would lie in bed with a magazine, or sometimes he would watch a video, or sometimes he used fantasies of his own. <laughs> now that, <laughs> listeners, is the line where I went what what <laughs> what that that's gone i didn't what's going now because i knew nothing about this going in nothing yeah it's good not to read even the blurb on the back right yeah yeah marie did you you when you came to it having having read i i read i've said i read lightning rods and then i read last samurai so i'm very late to the dewitt party did it kind of live up to your dewittian expectations having having read the first book very much yes and no. It is so different from The Last Samurai. And a lot of the time, if you have if you have beloved authors yeah. or great authors, um, I mean, if you think of anyone from, you know, Dickens, Austin, whoever you want, Woodhouse, anyone you want to choose, they might have written a lot of really good books, but they tend to, to stay within their lane. And that's not necessarily a problem. You sort of know what you're getting. You think, oh, I feel like reading that. You read The Last Samurai and then you read Lightning Rods 
And the thing that connects them, I mean, there's, when you look more deeply, there are more things that connect them, but they are so different in style and voice that I was like, wait, hang on. This doesn't feel like I'm reading the same kind of thing again. And yet the intelligence, the wit, the humor, the, the willingness to push an idea to its most insane extreme, the preoccupation with weirdness of genius, I would say, because this man is a genius salesman. And he's also very, underneath his plausible American mm. exper- exterior, he's a very strange mm. person. Mm. And uh, Helen DeWitt loves a strange person. So, I mean, I loved it as much as I loved The Last Samurai. So in that respect, I was, I was, I was delighted. But I was very surprised because I did not know what I was getting myself into until it was too late. Yeah, like so many characters in this book. Or not, or I, yes, I didn't indeed. Do. <laughs> Roy. Roy. Roy, the one who, who, who somehow accidentally is in the disabled loo, just using it as it was originally intended. <laughs> I know, but now, now I've read more DeWitt, right? Now I see Roy, of course, is the, is the measurement guy. He's the guy using... She's obsessed with measurements, isn't she? She's obsessed... She, one of, I've, I've never come across anybody who's got as much passion for the work of Edward Tuft as I have. Uh, Edward Tuft is this, is makes the, some of the most beautiful books I own are by Edward Tuft, and it's all about the visualization of knowledge for, over sort of centuries. So maps, finding different ways of showing information through graphs and maps, and and um, she's fascinated by what data. Uh, the examination of data in a way that I think there aren't a lot of contemporary novelists who who would have the same obsession with yeah. statistics and data, and it's data that that Roy begins to spot that the um, that the the effect of the lightning rods is having it's it's, it's people are taking many fewer less sick days, <laughs> and he smells a rat. What I like about her is she fixes on an idea. Partly, I think, for artistic reasons, but partly as an extension of personality. And there's a wonderful interview, uh, which you can see on YouTube, which I'm going to say a little bit more about later, and we'll put a link to it on our website. She talks about springtime for Hitler from the producers. And she says about lightning rods, well, lightning rods, you know, at some level, it's uh, not an attempt to outdo or to emulate springtime for Hitler. Springtime for Hitler is incredibly freeing. That's the perfect expression of that idea. How then can you operate in the shadow of Springtime for Hitler? I'm assuming anyone listening to this is familiar with the uh, producers and with Springtime for Hitler. But yes, I could see that Lightning Rods does indeed operate in a similar kind of, what if we present an unacceptable idea and pretend no one will blink? Yeah, and I think it's funny because it, she does mention it at the very end in the acknowledgments, she mentions that, that actually the book that I was thinking about the entire time reading this, or essay, I should say, is um, Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal. Um, it's I feel like it's the closest cousin to that yeah. um, yes. shocking essay where you begin in a place of well, I mean, it's hard to say that this book begins in a place of reasonableness, but where you take an idea that is so appalling <laughs> and present it as something that is entirely reasonable in such a way that 
that all the way through, it's very difficult to argue against the mm. point being made, um, even though you know that it's absolutely wrong. Well, it's almost written in the style of a, a biography, business biography, the sort of, yeah, I think I read yes. somewhere someone compared it to Michael Lewis, written in a future time where we're looking back on this, Yes, this, this thing that everyone kind of is aware of, and all the names. Uh, no one's given a surname or anything. They, they, they might have been names have been changed or whatever, because it feels like ah, oh, this is the story of the creation of this thing. Yes, we don't know people's backgrounds particularly. We get little digressions. One chap, it's helped a lot. Starts a lovely relationship with one of his colleagues, and you know, takes a daughter out for meals, and they they have a lovely yes, time because he's he's nice. been improved by the lightning rods process. So yeah, I mean, I I, I would also <laughs> compare it to something more recent, the Apple TV show Severance. How, are you any, is anyone familiar with that? I haven't seen it though. Okay, so it's set in a an office environment, and it takes a little bit like it's not um, a similar sort of subject as lightning rods. But it suggests what if we do this for our employees, what would be the effect on their home life, their their life outside the workplace and their life inside the workplace? Also, a novel called Company by Max Barry. I don't know. And then mm. there was, uh, and then we came to the end, Joshua Ferris. Uh, well, I love that's a wonderful book. Yeah. So there's a series of sort of corporate novels and works Definitely. that are saying this is the workplace how how can we take it to an extreme i mean ultimately the the central idea in the book is is horrendously insulting to men i mean it's <laughs> the idea that the idea that men would have almost all their sexual needs met by a hole on legs there's occasional moments where one of the men in the book thinks they start to miss <laughs> the top half of a woman <laughs> But essentially, essentially it works. And at times mm. I found myself thinking, does she actually believe what she said? I mean, on some level, does, does Helen DeWitt think, obviously this is grotesque, but basically it would do the job exactly as I'm describing. Mm. If, if it was acceptable, mm. this would actually, this, it would work just the mm. way that mm. I am describing mm. it. It's a terrifying thought because it does make you confront, well, what drives yeah. sexual harassment? What are men's sexual urges like? What do men need? What do men want? And all of her books have moments of, I would say, disgust for male sexuality. Um, it, it comes up over and over again where a female character is just being subjected to like the medley mm. in, um, in, in The Last Samurai. It comes up in some of her short stories as well. So she really doesn't have a lot of time for the way that male sexuality works or that male sexuality works for many men. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating while you're reading this is how just how cheeky is she being right now? Just how much does she believe what she's saying? while presenting it as something that is completely outrageous, does she think, yeah, but deep down, this is really what men need, <laughs> just a whole? Her method, it seems to me, her method as a writer is she simultaneously needs to be the person who believes it, so she has to prove it to her mm. own satisfaction, and the voice going, whoa, hang on a minute. Yeah, she has both those yeah. things going on simultaneously. Otherwise, it's not funny. 
if you didn't have both, would you have something funny? No, you'd have something that proved a point, but not necessarily humorously. Is it offensive? Well, is so, it offensive? I do not find it offensive because it is written by a woman who is making clear that all of the people who buy into this are idiots. Yeah. Except for a number of women who pragmatically choose to participate and then end up making a fortune and becoming Supreme Court <laughs> judges or millionaire litigators because they use the money to put themselves through Harvard Business School. And there's a strange digression in the book, which is to do with yeah. dwarfs, where the, the main character meets a dwarf on a bus and then gets very preoccupied in the fact that, that adequate bathroom facilities are not pro being provided for dwarfs. And he spends more time thinking about bathroom facilities for dwarfs than he spends thinking about what being yeah. either a Brilliant. lightning rod yeah. or yeah. A, a woman on the receiving end of sexual harassment might be like, all of this is done. The whole thing, we should make clear, is not set up to protect women from sexual harassment. It's to protect it's men to make them better from, salesmen. from unfortunately... Well, it's to, it's to protect yeah. men from their unfortunate urges yeah. and to protect companies from having to deal with sexual harassment yeah. lawsuits. Yeah. The, 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 the fact that women then end up not getting sexually harassed <laughs> is a pleasant byproduct of, of the idea, but not the, not the central purpose of it. Again, the satire on corporate America or on American society at large is here. Here is the idea that you just described, Marie. The men are all idiots. The women are demonstrably more developed yeah. intellectually and morally, yet the whole business and society is built around the idiotic men to protect the yeah. idiotic men. That seems to me a perennial um, theme. Marie, have you got a bit that's especially relevant to what we've just been talking about? As chance would have it, I do indeed. He knew from the first moment he set eyes on them that the guys were a bunch of assholes. They all reacted in exactly the same stupid way. Let me get this straight, they would say. The company is offering this as a part of its sexual harassment policy? Oh, boy. He had to remind himself that these people were keeping him in business it was the fact that they were assholes that had left the CEO of a competitive company at his wit's end of how to deal with them. If they hadn't been grade A assholes, the CEO would probably not have taken a giant step for mankind in being the first American executive to introduce lightning rods to the workplace. Besides, the thing to remember was that it was probably not their fault that they were assholes. <laughs> they were not to blame for their upbringing. All you had to do was talk to them to realise that these were people with no class. It wasn't their fault. They'd just been brought up that way. The way to look at it was, if a guy, through no fault of his own, has not been brought up to treat women with respect, is it fair that his whole <laughs> career should be put in jeopardy? Is it fair that on top of the disadvantage he has anyway in competing against guys who've been to Harvard and Yale, that he should have the additional handicap of endangering his career every time he is in the vicinity of female personnel. No, that isn't fair. And an egalitarian employer with a commitment to democracy 
will do everything in its power to remove the obstacles in the path of disadvantaged employees. Hell, they're legally obligated to provide a disabled toilet. Well, just because the law doesn't compel an employer to consider the needs of socially disadvantaged employees doesn't mean an enlightened employer can't be ahead of his time. That was just how Joe got himself through it, as he talked to one prized <laughs> asshole after another. It was hard work, no two ways about it, but it was worth it. Besides, it was nothing as compared to the almighty hassle of writing another software program. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So I was saying earlier that I think the novel is a satire, but the levels of satire within it are multiple. And... Uh, all great books, as we always say on Backlisted, are, are fundamentally books about books. And it seems to me that a lot of Helen DeWitt's work has become uh, about the, her, her awful experiences with the publishing industry. And indeed, I referred to the interview earlier that's on YouTube uh, from 2011. There's a half hour interview, really revelatory to me, where she talks about lightning rods. And somebody asks her, you know, were you channeling any of your frustration with the publishing world into Enlightening Rods? And she says, are you asking me if being published was like being fucked from behind through a hole in the wall? Yes, it was. <laughs> so that, I think, is one of the things, actually, that a lot of the energy from Lightning Rods is coming from her uh, furious logic or logical fury about her early dealings with the publishing industry. She'd been approached on her first book, The Last Samurai, to make some editorial changes. She was asked to make so many changes by a copy editor that she seemed to have spiralled into some kind of depression or fury and so decided what she would do was write 10 more novels which were only about one thing each rather than one novel that was about 10 things so she writes lightning rods relatively fast before the last samurai is published in 2000 then the last samurai is published does very well and then no one will publish lightning rods because it doesn't fit with the sort of novel they think they can do something with after the success of The Last Samurai. Because she got a huge advance. Yeah, so both novels are written before yeah. are anything has been published by her. So the idea, Ben, that Lightning Rods is about artistic frustration as much as other kinds of frustration seems quite uh, relevant to me. Absolutely. Well, it's almost like um, a Charlie Kaufman type thing where he, he can do a film about adapting a film and create a film that's not only a satire about adaptations, but also follows the rules of adaptations. I mean, there's an amazing bit. If you any screenwriter who watches something like Adaptation, which is a satire on how adaptations happen, Robert McKee, played by Brian Cox in the film, and he says, "Oh, I'm not going to, mm. I'm not going to follow the McKee structure." But of course, he, if you if you know the McKee structure, 
there's lots of jokes about it. And in fact, Lightning Rods does the same thing. There's, there's a scene towards the end, which is the negation of the negation. And hello, screenwriters, you just waved your arms in the air and said, oh, my God, the <laughs> negation of the negation. And if you know what that means and you spot it in Lightning Rods, it's a, an extraordinary moment. That's why someone like, you know, Charlie Kaufman is as as brilliant as Helen DeWitt is, because Helen DeWitt not only talks about taking the idea as far as it can go, but also her process is about, you know, taking the idea. I mean, ironically, it was one of the companies that had the problem with the publication is um, one of the ones that was most affected by the Me Too scandal, you know, in 2017 and all of that. Miramax, exactly, right? Yeah. So the last Samurai is published by Talk Miramax, the, the publishing arm. Marie, we had a conversation before we recorded about um, whether Lightning Rods was or is, crucially, ahead of its time. And I, I think we, we agree to disagree, don't we? Uh, uh, would you, do you think it's ahead of its time? I do not. I think that it anticipates Me Too in quite obvious ways. But I think that to, to consider it ahead of its time is to see the idea that, um, that sexual harassment only became an issue after Me Too or that people only spoke about sexual harassment after Me Too. Um, and I think that that really fundamentally misunderstands the situation mm. because women have, I mean, women have been experiencing sexual harassment at work since the invention of work and women mm. have been talking about it and writing about it and discussing it all that time, but it has never reached mainstream culture because on the whole men are still the gatekeepers of what is considered to be the mainstream mm. and anything that only appeals to women is considered to be a marginal mm. topic. Mm. So I do not like to call it ahead of its time because that suggests that, that nobody else was talking about this then. I prefer to say that the time was late <laughs> um, and the book, yeah. the book was on time, but the time was late. I think this is why we agree to disagree. I think what I mean is if this book were published now, it would find a more yeah, receptive and widespread audience. I do agree. Yes. The deal, the 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 background to the the Miramax. She was offered two hundred k eventually by Miramax for a book on poker and lightning rods. And the book on poker was supposed to come. She didn't think that lightning rods would make a good second novel. Um, anyway, they gave her two hundred k, and then but they didn't give her any of the technical support they'd say they, that they were going to give her to, to do the poker book. So the poker book went away and then they decided not to publish lightning rods. So she was left having moved to New York to, to work on. And it was, it was, it's a pretty bad. Please. I wonder why Miramax didn't want to publish lightning rods. It's just <laughs> why? Yeah. It's a mystery, isn't it? Isn't it? I, I, I urge anyone who is enjoying this discussion to check out this interview with her um, on YouTube where she goes through the titles and subject matter of nine or ten unfinished novels on her laptop. She's like um, Paddy McAloon from Prefab yeah. Sprout who supposedly has a dozen finished albums ready to go. Just she, waiting she had a hundred at one point, as she said. A hundred, she says, didn't she? Yeah. So we're going to have to wrap up in a minute, and but I really would love to hear from Ben, who I know has prepared this section to read us from, I think this is about midway through the book, isn't it, Ben? 
pretty early, actually. It's in sort of section two of the book, uh, First Impressions. Okay. Joe was the first to admit that he'd made a lot of mistakes when he started out. He worried about all the wrong things. The way he looked at it at first was take it slow, build up gradually. So the first thing he decided to try, if you can believe it, was a kind of office-oriented version of spin the bottle. But the one thing he got right was that it was important to look good. In the trailer, he'd only seen himself in the bathroom mirror that he used to shave in. Seeing himself in the office mirror had come as a shock. In fact, it had made him wonder whether he had actually been sane when he bought that suit in the first place. Why would anybody buy a shit-coloured suit? Why would that have seemed even momentarily a good idea? All right, it was on sale at the time, originally a 99 suit. It had been reduced to $49.99 with a choice of tie. But wouldn't you think you would at least wonder why they hadn't been able to sell it at $99.99? Wouldn't you think you would look at it and think, oh, I bet the reason they couldn't sell it at $99.99 was that nobody wanted to buy a suit that went with their turds. But no, he'd just gone in and said, hey, $49.99, and it fits, and it's 100% polyester, so it won't get wrinkled. Jesus. <laughs> I've been very paranoid that Helen DeWitt might listen to this podcast and uh, have strong views about what she hears on it. Uh, I don't know if my fellow panellists feel the same. Maybe they don't. And I was particularly anxious about what to say biographically. So what I've done is I've, I'm just going to read out her biography that she's written herself that's on her website. So hopefully she can't find uh, um, anything to object to in it. But also it's funny. So here we go. Helen DeWitt is the daughter of American diplomats. She was born in a suburb of Washington, D.C. and grew up mainly in Latin America, Mexico, Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador. She gets hit up for donations slash invited to reunions by Colegio Bolivar, Cali, Colegio Americano de Guayaquil, Northfield Mount Hermon, Smith College, Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford, Brasenose College, Oxford, GHS, the eponymous high school of the town that is home to the fighting gators, is missing a trick, as are others, too numerous to encourage. She has a BA and indeed Oxford MA in Literae Humaniores and a DPhil in Greek and Latin literature. Editors of previous bios have liked the 15-odd languages and the varied work history, conversion to Judaism in 1985, UK naturalisation 1999, and late-onset lesbianism have been seen as TMI. <laughs> Roland Barthes does say that an author's life can't be written by the author. <laughs> if Helen DeWitt is listening and wants to email me any of her unfinished novels, <laughs> my inbox awaits. Well, the most exciting thing uh, uh, to say at this point is you'll hear this probably in August, late July or August 2022, uh, the month of publication of a new short book by Helen DeWitt, called The English Understand Wool, <laughs> which we've been fortunate enough to read, many thanks to New Directions for supplying us with a, a galley copy of it. I thought it was brilliant. Absolutely uh, John brilliant. and Marie, what did, you, what did you make of it? Yes, I loved it. Every, every bit of Helen DeWitt is unlike 
every other bit of Helen DeWitt. But there is that kind of obsessive intelligence. Um, her, her, I mean, she's fascinated by language. I mean, she famously speaks about eight, nine languages pretty, pr- pretty fluently. What she said, she said, reading and speaking in another language is like stepping into an alternate history of yourself, where all the bad connotations are gone. And this is another. This is just another manifestation of um, of her extraordinary intelligence and and what I would call wit. wit. She's the one of the wittiest writers in that mm, full eighteenth century sense sense of the term. Marie, yeah. I would say she's witty and funny. And that's not often yes. the same. You don't often get those two things together at the same time. She does wit and she does jokes. Yes. And those are not yeah. the same thing. And and it's true. I mean, I feel like one thing I'd really love to say is The Last Samurai definitely has some pockets where you can get a bit lost. But on the whole, they sort of go down about touching the sides. Mm. I mean, she's incredibly intelligent. Yeah. She's unbelievably erudite. In fact, I think given how much she writes about genius, I think she is a genius, bona fide genius. Mm. No but, doubt about it. You know, this new book, you can just read your way through it and it's it's so well constructed. It's so perfectly put together. It's such a charming and oh, it's got a, a stiletto point of sharpness. It's got a scalpel at the heart of it, but it's 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 not difficult to read. You'll you'll you it's downhill skiing, you know, once you're in, you're in. Elegant, so elegantly written. Elegant, well. so elegant. Anyone who listens to this podcast who enjoys furious and dyspeptic uh, books about publishers, <laughs> this is one for you. So that's published by New Directions. That's called The English Understandable. That's out this month. Last Samurai is back in print. Uh, Lightning Rods is currently available, I believe, from New Directions and, and other stories. Some Trick, a book of her short stories, published in 2018 by New Directions. And finally, uh, her PDF novel, or the novel that was available as a PDF, which she co-wrote with Ilya Gridneff, called Your Name Here, is getting a full commercial release next year. So, Oh, that's exciting. There you go. Good news. More Helen DeWitt is something we can all agree on. Brilliant. I mean, I have to say, what a, what a, what a joy to discover her work. Uh, and I'm afraid that is all we have time for. We must say farewell to Joe and his extraordinary invention and offer huge thanks to Marie and Ben for helping us tackle such a strange and wonderful book, to Nikki for making us sound like we're all in the same office and to Unbound for all the magic meals. You can download all 167 previous episodes of Batlisted plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in Sound and Pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early. And for less than a deposit on an Electrolux, <laughs> lock listeners get two extra lock listeds a month. Our very own off-site brainstorming session where we indulge in grey sky thinking and try to remember the books, films and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. I would like to thank John Mitchinson for not going where I thought he might go with that particular <laughs> point of comparison. Well done, John. Lot listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And this week's new patrons include... Jonna Crow, Lucy Trolloa, Lauren Madden-Doyle. Thank you all for your generosity and to all our patrons, huge thanks for enabling us to continue to do what we love and enjoy. Ah, oh, thanks everyone. I've enjoyed reading and thinking about this so much, this funny, funny book. <laughs>
Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marie. Yes, brilliant. It, bless you. Cheerio. Bye. Bye. My father called and he started haranguing me and saying, well, you know, you don't think there's any hope and just kind of really shouting at me after this phone conversation. I just thought, you know, we don't pick our parents. If we could pick, I'm sure I would have picked better than you. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Lock Listed, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.